This is Ari Koretsky, and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. We are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know. Dailygiving.org is surging towards 9,000 daily givers. That means every single day, $9,000 or close to it is getting donated to an amazing organization. Today's organization, when I'm recording this, was to the National Conference of Synagogue Youth, NCSY, an incredible organization that does work nationwide and beyond, actually, with teenagers from across the Jewish spectrum. I personally had a tremendous impact in my life from NCSY and was so heartened to see all this money being donated to them today. And that will only continue tomorrow and the day after and the day after that because of generosity of so many of you. And if you haven't yet signed up, please do that, dailygiving.org, $1 a day. You'll feel so great about it. Today's guest is someone I have been trying to connect with for literally years and is in many ways a dream guest for me because Rabbi Yoshua Fass is the founder of one of the most impactful, transformative organizations in the Jewish world in recent memory. He is the founder of Nefesh Benefesh, and that is the organization that helps facilitate Aliyah moving to Israel from North America, United States and Canada primarily, and they have literally revolutionized that process. Such an incredible person, so much passion, so articulate, so committed to this vital mission. And we finally connected and had an incredible conversation that I'm thrilled to bring you today. Meanwhile, a reminder as always to follow us on social media at Jews You Should Know. Spell that fully on Instagram and Facebook. Jews You Should Know with the letter U on Twitter. Comments, questions to Jews You Should Know at gmail.com. Subscribe wherever you may be listening, especially if that's Apple Podcasts. Click that little plus sign in the upper right hand corner to start following the show. That means you'll get them all to your inbox without having to do anything. But we're also, of course, on Spotify, Google Podcasts, and wherever podcasts are consumed. And now, to our conversation with Nefesh Benefesh co-founder, Rabbi Yoshua Fass. We are here with Rabbi Yoshua Fass, the co-founder of Nefesh Benefesh, which for those unfamiliar, I'm sure it's not too many out there, but has revolutionized the world of Aliyah, of people being able to move to Israel over the last several decades, an incredible, incredible organization. And as we're speaking, it's really a kind of fortuitous time because we're recording right as the United States is about to go onto a quote unquote red list from Israel when it comes to COVID and the Omicron variant and so forth. And it's a time where Americans can't get into Israel unless they actually want to move there and live there, which is what Rabbi Yoshua Fass has dedicated his life to. So that's a long-winded introduction and way of saying, welcome, how are you? Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here finally after many, many months of attempting to synchronize our calendars. But uh, I, I'm so glad to be able to speak with you right now. Yes, and uh, this has actually been an interview that I've wanted to do for not only months, but, but years, in fact. You've been on my wish list for a long time, so I'm so glad we're finally connecting. Um, and of course, I've admired the organization from, uh, from a few thousand miles away greatly and seen what it's done for American and uh, really worldwide Aliyah. But let's take it from the top. Tell us a little bit about where you're from. 
course, I want to understand the context for where this this passion for Aliyah emerged from. And where did you grow up? What was your early childhood and your early beginnings like? First of all, I want to thank you because this is in lieu of therapy. So it's going to be very cathartic, <laughs> cathartic uh, whatever, how much time we have together. Um, I am uh, West Hempstead, New York born, uh, was really raised in Edison, New Jersey, Highland Park. My father actually was born in Palestine, and left uh, when he was 10 years old to America. So the, the Tzionut and Zionism came from my mother and father, but that uh, was a visceral connection. How did, he end, up, how did he end up in Palestine? Was it a refugee kind of situation? He was actually in Jerusalem during the uh, War of Independence in 1948. He has re- memories of being escorted out with tanks and uh, armored trucks. And uh, an incredible story in its own right. And then really raised in Highland Park, Edison, went to MTA, went to YU, uh, master's in YU, smicha at YU, got married young to Batsheva Brandstetter. And we always uh, had a aliyah or bust uh, mentality. We wanted to raise our family in Israel. We wanted to, to uh, we felt ideally and ideologically that that is where we wanted to have children and that's where we wanted to invest our talents. And uh, ironically, I started off on my track to medical school, that it's itself a whole other story, and then diverted to Smicha and found my way to Boca Raton, Florida, as an assistant and associate rabbi in Boca Raton Synagogue, and spent six wonderful, wonderful years there. And that was when Rabbi Brander was there, I'm guessing. Exactly. And uh, at the end of the five, six-year stint, when we were negotiating long-term contracts to stay for another five or ten years in Florida, um, Rahmana, a cousin of mine, was just celebrated his bar mitzvah. And it was the beginning of the second intifada. It was a few days before Pesach. And he was waiting at a bus stop. It was uh, last day of, of school before Pesach break. And a Hamas suicide bomber... Uh, approached uh, several boys and detonated a suicide belt, killed my cousin instantaneously and his best friend, Elirun Rosenberg. He maimed several other children. And at that time, being a rabbi and in the beginning of the second intifada and calling out every single, almost every single night, having an evening of Tehillim, of Tehillim and prayers for our brethren in Israel, um, two feelings uh, washed over me. Number one, almost a sense of impotence and that there was much more that could be done that wasn't done. And for me, it was a real wake-up call. It was a real sense of a calibration of compass, personal compass, because at that time, ironically, the more entrenched I became in the rabbinate and in the Jewish world and the diaspora, the further our plans of Israel became. And for me, this was a, a huge wake-up call to reassess and reevaluate our initial plans and our tzionut and our connection to Havat Yisrael and our love for Israel and to get us back on that path. And as I started sharing my wants and desires to, to move to Israel at that point, I expected a backlash of peers and colleagues and congregants saying, you're out of your mind, you have a future here, it's the fastest growing community in America, 
And uh, I didn't. I heard just the opposite. I heard a chorus of, we also want to, but. We also want to, but the bureaucracy is hellish. We also want to, but how do we find a job? We also want to, but there is no social network. We also want to, but we have student loans. And as I was sharing my recalibration of getting back on that highway to get to Israel and sharing our wants and desires with others, we realized that we were not alone. And we realized that the low number of Jews who were making Aliyah at that time was not really indicative of a waning passion or a lack of interest or a lack of yearning of moving to Israel, but just that there was never a infrastructure created for Americans. It's not placing any blame, but Israel looks at Aliyah or looked at Aliyah as, as a place of haven uh, for those running away from something. If you're running away from distress, political persecution, financial duress, anti-Semitism, then we'll be your haven, we'll be your home. But they never looked at creating, it's called a manganon, an infrastructure, a construct for those who were running to, not running from, but running to out of idealism and ideology and of opportunity of people who wanted to hit the ground running and contribute. And the entire approach had to be, had, had to be different and had to be removing obstacles and facilitating success. And after doing a little bit of research, I realized that they were hitting an artery of sorts so that people, that there was much more under the surface that could be tapped. I approached a congregant of mine, uh, Mr. Tony Gilbert, who is a friend and a philanthropist and someone very involved in Israel and Israeli politics and Israeli organizations. And I said, there's something really off here. Uh, and I think before I get empirically involved, I think that anecdotally, there, there is a lot of interest of moving to Israel, but no one's really addressing it, not in Israel and not here. And I took a sabbatical, a very short sabbatical from the, from the shul for a few months. Uh, I commissioned out of my own pocket uh, research and to, to analyze all the applications that were opened by the Jewish agency over the last several years to find out why they never actualized into real Aliyah, and also the retention rate that was actually horrific of those making Aliyah and then coming back. The recidivism, the recidivism. So low. <laughs> Exactly. And that was so low in asking and ascertaining what were the issues that people were ill-prepared and why wasn't it successful in both ways. Why were applications not fulfilled? And why did people who go, who went, came back? And it became a negative marketing product. Basically, if so few people were coming and more people coming back because a product wasn't successful, that's horrible marketing and promotion for that product. And, and I realized through that, that there was a recurring theme of the, the assistance of the social, the financial, the bureaucratic employment and if a construct or an infrastructure or an addressing of those issues would be established, then not only will people be more successful in their aliyah, but we would open up a floodgates of more olim and more successful aliyah. And then 2022, July 9th, was our first charter flight. And the charter flight was very important. The charter flight was to also shatter uh, the impression of of the Aliyah wasn't happening. It was putting Aliyah on a map. 
It was filling a plane of 419 people who were coming from strength and not out of weakness. It was promoting to Israel that this is something that they needed to reckon with and that they needed to put on their map that Aliyah from America can happen and has to be addressed differently. And lastly, it gave us the ability to think out of the box and to start bringing government officials on board to start doing the processing in flight and to getting onboarding them into this concept of being partners within this new way of thinking of Aliyah or Western Aliyah or modern day Aliyah, Aliyah of choice, not Aliyah of refuge. And uh, we landed the plane July 9th. Next morning, we're like, now what? <laughs> we, we had to absorb and successfully absorb these 400 plus Olim and have it not a one night wonder and have it and plan for the, the future. Fast forward to today, we've helped over 70,000 Olim. Our retention rate is over 92, 93% of those who've made Aliyah. We've had over 25,000 Sabras born and now second generation Sabras born. So we're in a universe of a micro, you know, an ecosystem over 100,000 people that are wearing those dorky nefesh nefesh hats. And it's been, and it's been a remarkable journey. And what's even more remarkable of being of playing a small part in people's lives in this really remarkable part of this transition into a new life of living in Israel and this historic fulfillment of generations of praying and dreaming and yearning and actualizing their returning back to our homeland. It's the future that's really exciting. And just the constant creativity of the staff of how do we grow to different populations and how do we ease more bureaucracy and how do we create more engagement with Israeli society and how do we fill that void that Israel needs in its next chapter with this new blood that's coming in, this new Zionist ideological calmer influence of American new Israelis that are coming to Israel. So that's a little bit of a background. There I think so there's I, a lot to unpack the there. And I want yeah. to kind of just go back and start start doing that. So first of all, just you personally, where were you at, you know, emotionally in, in your life at that point in time, flashback maybe 25 or so years, you know, first of all, why'd you go into the, into the rabbinate altogether? Was that an expression of a similar sort of longing or yearning to do something for the Jewish people that ultimately became expressed through this Aliyah vision? Great question. I always wanted to, in tandem, do medicine and also the rabbinate. I was always fascinated in medical ethics. Uh, Rav Tenor was, was an inspiration to me. I always wanted to do the duality of sorts of, of, of those occupations. And in my year leading up to medical school, or when I was about to start medical school, I had, I had a year because of the year in Israel and finishing college early and that whole weird early admissions construct. I had a year, not to blow, but I had a year until, until medical still started. And I was employed as like a lab rat in Columbia University um, doing research and they lost their grant. And I was just newly married and I promised my in-laws that we were to be independently, uh, that we subsist on our own. And losing <laughs> this grant, I was really put you know, in, a, in a very difficult position. And I decided, you know what, let me... Let me go and swing that other pendulum to smicha. I went straight when, when they lost their grant. I think that afternoon I went to Rav Schechter. I went to the kolo and I said, and I said, could I just sign up for kolo? Could I start doing smicha now? 
and, and talking about whether or not I break if I go to medical school or not. And I fell in love with it. I fell in love with smicha. I fell in love in, in teaching. We, I would, we did a lot of teaching positions during that year to make up for that tiny little amount of income that I needed to subsist on for that year. And I fell in love with it. And, and I had that, that eureka moment that if I had an ability to spend time um, being a mechanich or a rav, I would choose that over medicine. And finishing smicha and then going down to Boca and, and then really always dabbling at one point in Boca. I try to see if I can do also a PhD in some kind of biological field that didn't work out. Spent a lot of time chaplaincy in the hospitals just to feel that connection. But it, it was it was a drive to serve, to serve our people, to serve humanity and, and trying to tap into different talents to see what was the best version of myself. Of, of what can I give to people. It's fascinating if you think about the kind of this alternate history possibilities, right? So had you gone and become a doctor, it's probably less likely that you ever would have made Aliyah, much less started a, you know, a whole organization around it. In, in contrasting oh, uh, that, uh, uh, yeah. A, th- a, th- a thousand percent. I, I, just to give you parallel universes, the research that I, w- that I was involved in was olfactory receptors and neurotransmitters. It was Dr. Axel was doing a whole analysis and, and scientific research of mapping out um, neurotransmitters brain through your, your smells. And, uh, and, and he, when they lost the grant, there was a promise to all of us, these lab technicians, that he would put our names on all the research finding and it will help us in our careers. And uh, fast forward, I think six years ago, he won the Nobel Prize on olfactory receptors and neurotransmitters. So, oh my about goodness, parallel universes. <laughs> How's that? <laughs> wow, so you could have been, you know, and we, and, and you would have been a happy, you know, fulfilled person, you know. And it just, um, it's hard to imagine, you know, the the impact and the, the you know the divergent possibilities. So so interesting, the what ifs of history. And so you went down to Boca. Now Boca is. For those unfamiliar, now it's I mean it's exploded. But at the time you were talking about it, it was it was this fast growing dynamic community Rabbi Brandu, who's now of course himself in Israel, was building this community up. And ironically enough, Rabbi Goldberg was of course become a uh, sort of a, a scion of the uh, rabbinic trade nationally. Now, who currently leads the, the synagogue, he's going to be in Baltimore uh, this coming weekend. I'm actually going to be interviewing him, uh, not for the podcast specifically, but for an audience there. And so. I imagine you had some relationship with, he was, I think in that original group of, right. Uh, of people down there. So you know, the, there was a, a real dynamic experience and situation going on. I guess, was it just this sense of the intifada and the, and the sense of identification with the pain that was going on in Israel? Like what jarred you and sort of, you know, shocked you out of the, I don't want to call it complacency because you were, you were doing something meaningful there. You know, what was it, what was it that was able to get you moving out of this incredibly exciting Jewishly in, enriching environment that you were in to say, okay, something, something's off here. Boca was, was a remarkable six year experience. Uh, I loved every moment of it. I love the rabbinate element, the chinuch element, the chesed element. The cure of the open minus, the the meeting of Jews of every single walk of life. Um, I loved it. It was it was it was where I matured a bit in in my adulthood of just being exposed to so much that I that I wasn't prior. I think it was the departure of the initial ideological drive. I always felt extremely passionate 
about the centrality of Israel within our Jewish experience. And I think the, the tragedy was very much a, a putting a mirror in front of myself, of asking myself what happened to those ideological drives. It was not a fluke, but but if I wasn't successful in this move, I would have found some kind of other experience to conflate my experience of the rabbinate and chinuch and leadership with some kind of expression of love for Israel or support of Israel. I think just the confluence of a lot of good mazel allowed the establishment of nefesh a lot to do with my partner, Tony Gelbart, of being a catalyst to making it happen. And that allowed me to really move 100% of my focus and efforts for making that happen. And failure was not an option at that point when I departed from this role. But it was very much, it was just a wake-up call for me. It was a wake-up call of re-examining myself and my initial interests and and asking, where was I at life? Sometimes we, it was almost as the Ramah says, it was a wake-up from your slumber and just examine where you're at. And there are some moments in life that were given sometimes luxuries and sometimes painful reminders to allow ourselves to analyze where we stand in life. And for me, it was a painful wake-up call. So what was the state of North American Aliyah at the time, the early 2000s? Early 2000s, you had 1,200 people making Aliyah a year and a, a retention rate of less than... 60%. So you would have, that's a very bad business model. Fast forward to today, amidst Corona, when, when consulates were closed and embassies closed and paperwork was impossible to get and airlines were shuttered and, and uh, you had to get PCR tests up to the wazoo, um, we're ending the year with close to 1,500, uh, 4,500, sorry, 4,500 olim from the U.S., Retention rates over 92, 93%. So it's, you're talking about just within the number growth is fourfold and in the retention rate, you're doubling it. So it's, it's, it's a major net positive infusion into Israeli society and also into communities throughout Israel. So what were the pain points back then? I mean, I guess before you started, someone wanted to make Aliyah, they would apply to the Jewish agency, right? And fill out paperwork, I guess. And what, what was the process back then? And what was difficult about it at the time? Yeah, I don't think it was proactively a system. It was very much a system that was reactively facilitative. Um, I'll be kind <laughs> in, in, in those phrases, because the Jewish agency has come around and has really grown um, as, as a tremendous partner of ours over these last 20 years. But, um, but I made Aliyah when I was 10 years old, and it was, it was a horrible experience. Um, there was no one there for us during the process, no one there when we landed after the process. And that loneliness and that passivity of facilitation made a person interpreted as a lack of receptivity or a lack of welcoming. And that loneliness really pushes a person to default to what they're accustomed to. In anything in life, it doesn't have to be Aliyah. You put your neck out. Let's say you go to school. You tell your kids to try out high school. And they go to a different high school and they're the only new kid on the block. And no one welcomes them. And they don't know the language and they don't know the codes and they don't know the slang. You know, the slang. And, and they're alone every single day, lunchtime 
and no teacher comes to them and says, come to me if you have an issue. And they're left to their own. They're going to go back. They're going to complain to their parents. I want to go back to my other school or I want to go with my friends. It's, it's a natural, it's our natural reaction. So, and that was experienced within the Aliyah system since 1947. So to understand that people are not running away from something and giving them anything that will be better for them from where they're coming from, meaning don't complain, we gave you a rooftop. Don't complain, we put you in a tent. Don't complain, we, we got you away from running away from anti-Semitism. So for, for many during history of the, of the foundation of our state, that was sufficient. But from people who, in their minds, they're giving up certain stability, they're sacrificing a certain level of prominence to invest themselves and invest their talents in Israel and to raise their family, to not have that proactive facilitation and recognition and celebration and assistance, then that's interpreted as, you don't want me here. And if you don't want me here, then that engenders a sense of loneliness, and that loneliness pushes a person back. So the touch points, it doesn't make a difference whether or not it's employment or bureaucracy or social networking. It all comes down to the same disease. Those are only symptoms, is loneliness. And if you have a body of people who are saying, call me, we're open, we have 100 staff that are sitting here, that they're, they're dynamic and each of them went through the same experience as you or have made Aliyah and they understand the nuanced culture. They understand the difficulties and challenges. They want to help because either they went through an experience that they were changing or they went through an experience that used to be the old experience. But we don't want other people to go. We want to have a better version of this process constantly. And that just engenders a sense of I'm not alone. And there are touch points within that. And it can continue with finding religious communities and finding a Basharat and finding a Shabbos night. And there's so many different touch points and aspects of that loneliness or that counter loneliness that we can go on for hours about. But it comes down to knowing that you're proactively being assisted and someone cares about you throughout the process. Why did you think that it was fell upon you to do something like this? You know, you were going to make Aliyah yourself. You you had this catalyzing moment with the tragic murder of your cousin and, and his friend, and you're, you're going to come to Israel yourself. You know, it's, it's a big jump from there to saying, well, I need a better Aliyah process. I might as well create an organization that's going to help smooth the transition for everyone. It's insanity. It's insanity <laughs> and, and, and chutzpah combined together. Um, it's funny because we had this idea and Tony and I did a lot of research and we said, before we even share this crazy idea with anyone, let's go to Israel and let's meet with, with prominent politicians and different organizations and just pitch the idea because they might slam the door in our face. They might say, how dare you? How dare you? You're, you're a little pisher. <laughs> you, 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 you haven't made Aliyah yourself yet. You don't know the, the, the mechanisms. You don't know the history here. You don't know the regulations that go here. Who, how dare you come and propose something, a radical change and a recalibration of what we do here? But everyone was, thank you. Finally, we have a, just a different outsider's, almost like a Yitro kind of perspective. If you can change the process, if you can help us change the process. Now, not everyone was receptive. Not everyone was so positive, but enough enough of a positive reaction that allowed us to take that leap. And the moment that we engaged 
with either prime ministers or presidents or or heads of mechanisms that were involved in Aliyah. And they're like, we're willing to take the step with you. We were so pleasantly surprised by the receptivity that we received and that they expressed. And when we went to what people expressed, you know, the the archaic or old bureaucratic strongholds of the Ministry of Interior and those who everyone thought were going to be the, the mountains that we needed to, to move. And we shared with them that, you know what, we want to have a charter flight and we want to have 400 plus people on a plane. And wouldn't it be amazing if we spared all these immigrants from having to wait online for eight to 10 hours, two weeks from now to prove that they exist? Wouldn't it be amazing if we made an office on the charter flight? And the response was like, that would be unbelievable. And all of a sudden, you, you, they started to smile and they started to have life infused and they became part of the solution and part of this Zionist dream and, and reinvigorated their work. And I think over the last 20 years, almost I think every branch of the Ministry of Interior has either been on a plane at least twice, has, has come to our office to do office hours of open hours for, for Olim who live here in this country. It's it's engaging with them as not being the problem, but engaging and respecting the partners and saying, you've been here much longer than we have, and you have expertise, and you have talent, and you have passion, but somehow have not been able to express it, and come aboard, let's do this together. And that orientation of, of limiting your, your hubris and the chutzpah and, and the, the know-it-all and coming and saying, we want to help. Not we know how to do it, or we want to do this without you. We want to help you. We want to help get this done. We want to bring new life to the process. And if you ask our partners of the last 20 years, I mean, that's, we've always, and it's partners and it's family. We, we haven't done this with a toxic approach. We haven't done this with a know it better approach. We've done it with, with arms outstretched and tried to find out what they needed to help them help others better. That sounds like you took a really healthy, you know, healthy approach in terms of not alienating those you really needed. Obviously, Israeli bureaucracy is notoriously convoluted and uh, difficult. And what you really did was, it sounds to me like you humanized the people you know, behind those desks. You didn't look at them as, you know, impediments, but you looked at them as, as people who actually had something to offer. And as we know, you know, in, in Israel, although the bureaucracy is intense, protexia works. Right. And, and why does protection work? Because at the end of the day, people are people. And so when they feel that it's a personal connection, they come alive and their humanity emerges. And so it sounds like you tapped in to that. It, it's not only that, they're 100%, but there are two points that I want to add. Many Americans who make Aliyah have never experienced what immigration is. The immigration process to America is by far much more intense and much more cumbersome and a lengthier process than immigrating to Israel or to many other countries. So when you're talking to individuals and you just give that comparison of what immigration processing is, it's just an explanation that that changes just their orientation. The second thing is we did a survey. We do surveys often every few years. And we asked what, once we asked a few years ago, what was the most difficult bureaucratic challenge or office that you have dealt with post-Aliyah? And what is it? The U.S. Embassy. <laughs> Fascinating. <laughs> That's really interesting. Uh, obviously, Nefesh Benefesh is not only dealing with getting people to Israel, right? Because right. as you said, there's the absorption, there's the integration, there's the 
you know, finding the right community, finding the right jobs, finding the right schools for your children, all of that, which goes into the, the second prong, which is the, the retention. And you said you've, you've had this incredible retention rate. How did you know early on what to offer, what to do for people once you got them, you had this charter, you got them here, you landed, everyone's happy, waving the flags, kissing the politicians. Okay, now what? How did you know what to do next? How did you know what to offer people and where to go from there? Well, we did research on, on previous cohorts before their first cohort landed. And we, we listened to what those OLEM needed from the first flight. And we were responsive to, to the OLEM's requests. Some of them needed smaller groups. So we did smaller groups. Some of them wanted, you know, the huge 300-person TUL on Sukkot. Fine. Some people wanted me to come to the bris of their child. Okay. Uh, it, it's... It was reacting towards the needs. And then trial and error of learning what each group needed. The service that we give today is by far completely different from the post-Aliyah servicing that we gave 20 years ago. Uh, when the first cohort that came in 2002, they were buddied with families and a mentor. They were given a, a cell phone. They had uh, pen pals before. It do that doesn't exist because so many people have made Aliyah. People create their own network. The technology has helped people bridge the gaps of pilot trips and experiences way before they, they've come here. People are doing their own research because the internet exists now. Uh, people do their own research. People have picked their own communities. People are going to like-minded individuals. They're, they're relying on us less for the technicalities, for the trappings of that facilitation and guidance and the different type of programming that we need. And we're investing a lot in the retraining for relicensing and helping on the national causes of bringing more physicians because there's a medical shortage, a physician shortage that's impending. We're helping move and help settle Olim in the north and south uh, of the country. We're helping with an educational initiative of making sure that the next generation of leaders and youth are connected to what Zionism is and what Israel and the centrality of Israel should mean to them. We're creating long-term thinking with an institute of educating our parliamentarians here in Israel of what an OLE is, because sadly, sometimes they're not taken into consideration when they're passing laws. So it's a re-educating of, of a whole Israel society that modern day Zionism exists, Aliyah of choice is a new wave of Aliyah, and, and, and many, many other different uh, aspects of, of macro programming and national building that the organization is involved in. And we just uh, a few weeks ago opened up our, our doors to our new campus here in Yushalayim, in Jerusalem, and it's just exploding with possibilities and, and groups are coming in constantly. Where is the new facility? It's right across the Supreme Court, right next to Cinema City, across the Supreme Court, across the street from the foreign ministry, next to Gan Soccer. Wow. It's a real what, what a location. location. And it's, it gives us the ability to, to have programming literally for 1,500, 1,800 people a day, and the staff not being interrupted. We can have four different events happening um, simultaneously. The places, it's a campus. It, it gives us such versatility and such energy and, and an ability to dream and program and educate and celebrate and advocate and all the eights <laughs> of verbiage. <laughs> but uh, it's, uh, it's really a dream come true. And for us, you know, it, it came at a perfect time. Because sometimes organizations, after a certain amount of years, they hit a plateau and then they just coast. Stagnate. They, they, yeah, they stagnate the finesse. 
they finesse and they perfect, but they but but we're at a chapter that it's really MBN 2.0. I'm as excited as today as it as I was 20 years ago. It's it's a com- complete overhaul of what we can do and what service we can do and our engagement can be with Israelis and students here in GAP programs and yeshiva and APAC and Birthright and Chayalim and Olim and just, and the list continues. That is, I'm so curious, what was your own personal Aliyah experience like? Because you came at the time, you know, you came before Nefesh Benefesh existed or as it was being created because you were the one creating it. So what were your own challenges? Did you have family there already? How old were your children? Like, what was your personal experience? Because so often those details make a major difference in in the experience for people. It was challenging. (laughs) Um, For me, I was so caught up in the first days of Nefesh that it it fell a lot on my wife, Bacheva's shoulders. And I think she would be taken by the fact that I'm saying it's challenging. It was very challenging for her because I was being pulled away to meetings and to press. We actually even had the Sun Sentinel from Florida like move into our house for two days to document what immigration was. And that was that was fun. <laughs> um, it was a lot because it was trying to bifurcate, divide my time to making sure that my family was getting the attention that it needed, but also this whole new baby um, of mine. And we had three kids at that time from you know seven down. And, and I had two si- sisters that were living there. My parents were there during that summer that they could help. Now all my siblings live here. My parents live here. My whole family's here. Um, but the first, uh, the first months were very challenging just to, to find our way. And also my wife came from, from a place that she knew her position. She was a Rebbitzin. She knew how to give of herself. And now we're in a new place, in a new town. I'm in a new role my focus is in creating this new entity, being pulled by politics, by press, by new engagements, and my family is trying to find its new way. We survived. <laughs> what, what have you learned? Thanks, over- thanks all to my wife. Thanks to your wife. I'm sure. I'm sure she gets the lion's share. Sounds like you were quite busy. You know, over these 20 years, you've learned obviously so much. You're you're this sort of walking repository of wisdom and guidance about the Aliyah process, and I know that you've trained and brought on many, many staff who have each, you know, d- developed their own expertise in different niche areas of the process. But what do you suggest today when, when somebody says to you, okay, I'm looking, I'm interested in starting to think about Aliyah, thinking about moving to Israel. What kinds of steps do you suggest people take? Do you at, do you tell them, hey, you know, you should be thinking about certain kinds of jobs or you should be making sure that you do X, Y, or Z in terms of your children. You know, a lot of people talk about the ages of children, when the, when people should come or shouldn't come and all those kinds of things. What are your sort of best practices or, you know, tips for the, the most successful possible process when, when somebody's thinking about this journey? A great question. I've a- I'm asked it constantly. And... and- there are two components, whether or not you make Aliyah or you get a new job or you move to a different state or a different country. You have to make sure that there's buy-in, exciting buy-in, excitement buy-in from the family members. To take anyone to a different place begrudgingly against their will is not a recipe for success for, for anything, for Shalom Bayat between husband and wife, between children, especially in their teenage years, you have to make sure that people are all on the same page. And sometimes I even encourage if a couple or family has only the means for two tickets to come on a pilot trip, sometimes I tell 
that one spouse should come with their eldest child. It's so important that there is children representation and spousal representation that everyone is on the same page with this exciting move. And second, research. Research, we're in a very different age. We're self-dependent on, on so much, we're so much more customer savvy and nuanced in the research that we do before we buy anything. We, we go on, we look at customer view. It's just research, research the job opportunities, research what can be transferred and what licensing is necessary, research your communities. And you go to our website, there are literally tens of thousands of pages that we're constantly updating of the research that's been done by us and by other OLIM that preceded you. You can find everything, you can do research, and, but you can't come, I, I don't understand how people can make a move when they've not done easy, thorough research. In any move, if you move to Scottsdale and, 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 and you just moved and you showed up and like, where do, is there a school here? Is there a shul here? Is there kosher food? People will look at you as your shop. So like the same thing, just, just treat this move as any other move that requires significant attention and seriousness and make sure that everyone buys in with the same sense of excitement and acceptance to this move. If you have that, it doesn't make a difference how old your children are. It doesn't make a difference really um, where you move or not. It, the successful variables is if that you have your family that is equally on board and you've done thorough research together, where is your best chance? Don't think that from 6,000 miles away, you can shoot an arrow and hit the bullseye of exactly where you think is gonna be the best place for the rest of your life. And people think that. Oh my, and they do research ad infinitum of, will this block in this place be the, stop. We don't do it in our lives here in America. You, you find a place, you rent, you try it out. You might move to a different place in the community. You might move to a different community. Your destination, your bullseye should be Israel and try out different communities. You shouldn't buy first. You know, you're, you're, that's your bullseye. And then you finesse and fine tune your bullseye to where you think your family should be at the best times of where the family's in growth and the schooling that's appropriate for your children and what's best for you and your spouse when it comes to traveling to work. But that itself reduces the stress and tension because people think that from 6,000 miles away from my five-day pilot trip, I'm going to shoot that arrow and it's going to land exactly for the perfect schooling for my kids, the perfect shul, the perfect rov, the perfect place to the perfect block, calm it down reduce the tension, get to Israel with the softest landings that's possible, and then adjust, then finesse. In that vein, do you ever discourage people from making Aliyah? Yes, 100%. If it's not right, timing is very important. If you have a couple that's coming to you, a couple that's dating, and, you, and they're asking advice whether or not they should get engaged, and you see that they're completely not on the same page, would you discourage them from getting engaged tomorrow? Of course you would. It's ethical responsibility. You, it might be that they might be right in three months from now or six months from now or in two days from now, but they have to resolve different issues. If I see a kid kicking and screaming at the age of 17 and the parents are not on the same page, don't push it off. Wait until your kid goes into college, make sure that you're on the same page. You're not going to destroy your lives over an ideological move. You want this to be successful. You don't want to just you know, be Yotze, you don't want to just check off a box we made to Israel. You want to have a successful life. You want to have a successful future. You want to have grandchildren to be thriving in Israel, not surviving, thriving in the country. 
So of course I do. Not many times, but when it's glaring and it's blatant and it comes across my table, I will get them. And, you know, sometimes it's comforting for them to hear it from me because they think they're going to hear a rah-rah, aliyah, or bus kind of, uh, of speech. And I tell them, you know what, wait a year, wait a year, or wait a few more months, or wait three years. And sometimes when I know that a person's specialty, let's say in a position, will be more marketable here in Israel, and it will change their trajectory of success in Israel, I'll tell them, take two more years in America, get that specialty, get that degree, get that experience under that belt, because it will so radically change your successful career here in Israel that will impact all aspects of your lives. So sometimes they say it's, t- it's a lot about timing. You know, you didn't come into this looking to be an organization builder per se. You know, you're trained in the rabbinet and so forth. Growing an organization, a nonprofit is a whole world, a whole universe, right? What have you learned along the way? What have been the difficulties? What have, and how has your role changed when you were at first kind of the clearinghouse for everything and the, the doer? Now you're a manager of a hundred people and the, the face of this global organization. How has that changed for you? These are great, great questions. Three things. It'll probably evolve to more as we talk. I had a lot of naivete going into this position, and I've grown a lot in just astuteness of, of, of just financial know-how, of, of managing, of talking a different dialogue with accountants and lawyers and the mechanics and nuts and bolts. And that's just learning on the job. And uh, as years progressed, I, I became more and more savvy within different elements. And I still continue to fall on my face on certain aspects, but they're learning. They're all learning moments for me. And, but I think I've grown in that aspect. I've grew in trust. I, I micromanaged a lot. I remember the first two years, I would be literally sitting on the floor licking envelopes because I didn't trust whether or not the it would be mailed to the right place and the documents would be all accounted for, put in the envelopes, the right envelopes. And that's a letting go. And that's entrusting talent and empowering talent. And the more you empower good talent, the more you can actually divorce yourself from that micromanagement. And, and that took ugh, so many years, but it's great. It, it allows me to, to think big. It allows me to be creative. It allows me to have upper mobility within staff because staff can grow into different areas of growth and management and programming responsibilities. The more I disengage and move on to different projects, they're able to elevate themselves and take on more responsibilities. And, and just a, a professional outlook and, and, and putting myself out there a little bit more and, and, and putting myself in, in areas that you're not comfortable with. And uh, I didn't realize how much I would have to go out on a limb and put myself in, in areas that, that I was not accustomed to be in or uncomfortable and putting your neck out. It's, it, it was very easy being an associate rabbi. <laughs> I didn't stop by you. Um, and now imagine a world of 100,000 Jews here and a staff of 110 and, and being engaged on a political sphere in, in government and programming in partners and in funding opportunities and just speaking at engagements that, that knowing that people are going to laugh at my Hebrew 
it's putting yourself in, in uncomfortable positions, pushing yourself and, and growing through it and becoming a better person and a better manager through that process. And there's a lot of humility. If you embrace humility through this process, then you can ask questions of how to do things. Ask people, how do you say this? Ask people saying and saying to an Olet, I don't know. And I've been so out of touch with the nuts and bolts of the Aliyah process. Maybe speak to this person in the organization. If you acknowledge how little you know, you grow so much more. And that's something that I've been embracing lately. Just starting to wrap up, Yeshua Khur, tell me about some of the most interesting people who have made Aliyah. I know sometimes you see you know, stories in the papers you know, or in the, uh, the different websites you know, the oldest person to be on a Nevis Benevish flight, the youngest person, you know, you know, baby born on the Nevis Benevish flight. I don't know if that's actually happened, but, you know, think the, all these like sort of extreme human interest stories for you personally, who have been some of the most moving or interesting or surprising people who have come over on Aliyah through your, through your programs. I, I can't highlight names. I, I will share. It was avatars. <laughs> okay. yeah, yeah, avatars. No, from, from Admorim on a plane sitting a row next to the most leftist secular Jew and, and just being moved by the common denominator of the love of Israel of creating this unity, which is such a rarity. And, and people ask me, what's for me the most moving moment is being on a plane and seeing every type of Jew. Because it, it's, it's, sadly, it's a rare occurrence to see our nation in one place for 10 hours, not fighting, and sharing the same experience and sharing the same excitement. And, and everywhere in between, and being on a plane with 100 soon-to-be soldiers, and uh, there's, there's been so many moments. We had a Shever Brochos on, on a flight once where a, a couple made Aliyah three days after their wedding, and I announced the mazel tov on the, on the PA, because I get to use that. That's one of the biggest perks of my job. <laughs> and I want to wish mazel to this couple. And all Olim musician, musicians who were making aliyah um, with their musical instruments took down guitars and flutes. And I think we had one even accordion. And we had a shevrebrochos, a spontaneous shevrebrochos on board. And it was just incredible. We've had multiple, you know, marriage proposals on the bottom of, of the, the staircase down from the tarmac of, of couples sharing this, either people waiting for them or people on the plane. We've had just incredible moments. And for me, and I share this at, at our inauguration, our Hanukkah Tavayat of New Building, uh, the one memory that will forever be etched in my heart and my mind is uh, we once had a plane, we had a Holocaust survivor. And an Auschwitz survivor who happened to sit next to a 10-year-old girl. And it, they were both in business class. It was just a weird confluence of factors that moved this girl there. She was with her father who broke his leg, and we had to move the whole family there. And it was the two of them, this 90-year-old sitting next to this 10-year-old girl. And they started off as strangers. And throughout the flight, I kept on checking in on them and they became, they were giggling and talking about their nervousness and their butterflies, you know, of, of nervousness of making Aliyah and their shared excitement. And then when we landed and, and the doors opened to this roaring crowd of a thousand people welcoming crowd to this plane, 
this 90-year-old uh, Auschwitz survivor was holding hands to this 10-year-old girl from New Jersey. And they walked down the stairs together holding hands. And that moment uh, for me was, over the last 20 years, was one of the most extremely emotional moments. The nexus, that meeting point between pain of a generation and promise of dr dreams and reality, of shouldering history of generations to a promise of generations to follow, of just seeing how much history was between those two hands, that clasp of the the horrors and just the, the inability to imagine a world without the state of Israel. And uh, for me, just having that experience and facilitating that experience and witnessing that experience, that, that encapsulated a lot of the beauty of uh, what Nefesh does and what modern Aliyah is all about. What a beautiful vignette and, and such a profound metaphor for everything that that you're accomplishing. Finally, Yeshua, how did you choose the name Nefesh Benefesh? Where did it come from? I mean, just for those who don't know what it means, it means soul with soul or, uh, you know, kind of the image of two souls bound together. What does the imagery mean for you and, and where did the name come from? Circling back to the beginning of our conversation, when my cousin was killed in the beginning of the second intifada, I needed to fight that darkness with a sense of light, uh, that pain with some promise. And I wanted to stand, not that you can ever replace another human being, but I wanted to stand in that place to hold my cousin's flag, his flag of Jewish people, his flag of Jewish homeland, his flag of returning, you know, gathering of exiles, I needed to hold that flag. Nefesh b'naf show. I needed to, to stand and to continue that, that spirit, that, that life source, that imagery. Uh, Israelis, I explained to Israelis that it's really nefesh Yehudi, nefesh b'naf show, kshula, you know, you're connected, diaspora to Israelis, but between you and me on this special podcast, um, it was me feeling the need to stand there, to bring light and to fight terror with a sense of hope. Because to not get into the trenches of pain, but to, to, to not only mete out justice, but to outshine the negativity with a glaring sense of hope and optimism and light and future. Rabbi Yushua Fass, founder, co-founder of Nefesh Benefesh, 20 years strong, what an incredible honor to speak with you finally. I'm so, so thrilled that we were able to connect after all the time ourselves. A good metaphor, the Jewish people, you know, took a long time to get into back to their homeland. So we took a long time to, to do this podcast. So sorry. <laughs> but it's a, a really an honor and, and worth every moment of the wait. Thank you so, so much for joining us. Thank you. This was really enjoyable. Thank you. Thank you so much. This was great. And just a final reminder to join me along with almost 8,000 other people as a daily donor to dailygiving.org. You will be thrilled with yourself for days, months, and years to come. Dailygiving.org, proud sponsor of Jews You Should Know. Please join me in signing up right now. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. 
please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Jews You Should Know. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews You Should Know.